You can be seated. Before I open the scripture, let me just uh, let me pray once again. Thank you, Mike, for praying. Father, in these moments that we have, I just pray that you, more than anything else, would show us your glory. And for those who come here with hearts that are empty and they know it, I'm looking for something, something real, something tangible, something that's guaranteed and certain in a very uncertain and changing world. I just pray that you would open eyes this morning. And for those of us uh, whom you have already touched, I pray that you would deepen our thirst and our hunger and our passion and our commitment and our faith in who Jesus is and all of his wonders. And uh, I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, for those of you who might not know, my name is Dan Deckard. I'm one of the pastors here at Parkway Community Church. Um, the father of three, I should say the happy father of three, and, and this month I actually uh, transitioned into the teenage parenting mode. Pretty exciting. When I came to Parkway, uh, my, my oldest son was six months, and, and now he's turning 13, so if you think of me, you can pray. Um, but my youngest son is, is old enough, he's going on four and a half, that I watch a lot of animated movies. And um, the, the most recent one is, is Astro Boy, which he wants to watch almost every day. But still, one of my favorites is, a, is an animated movie by the name of The Incredibles. Um, some of you have seen it. If you haven't, you haven't lived, so rent it, you know, um, download it or something. With uh, Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl and Dash and his sister and Jack-Jack. But there's this, there's this statement that's made in the opening of that movie that sticks in my mind to this day. And this is... Uh, the statement. It's, uh, there's an interview going on with Mr. Incredible. And he says this. Let's see if I can get this right. He says, no matter how many times you save the world, it always manages to get back in jeopardy again. Sometimes I just want the world to stay saved. You know, I feel like a maid. You know, I clean this mess up. Can't you keep it clean for 10 minutes? And I love that line because that's the frustration of a superhero. It's like you save the world today and then the next day there's another villain, another, another tragedy to be saved from. It's this never-ending repetition of save and perish, of cleaning and then it getting messy again. And that, that stuck with me, you know, because that, that's funny, but it's also insightful because that's how life is. That is, you know, you tell your kids to clean up their room. And it's not just a possibility that we'll get messy again. It's a certainty. It will happen. You know, you clean the dishes and you scrub the counters so they have that nice squeaky clean sparkle to them. Smells like citrus. It's not going to stay that way. You're going to have to do the dishes again. Then you're going to clean them. You're going to do them again. You're going to clean them, do them again. You fill the car up with gas. I'm the gas filler guy in my house. My wife hands me the keys. I say, okay, I fill it up with gas. And it seems like five minutes later she hands me the keys again saying, it's out of gas. It's like I just like it to stay full of gas one of these days. I mean, that's, that's life, this never-ending repetition of cycles. And those little cycles of life are part of a bigger cycle of life. You know, all of us, depending on what we do, you get up in the morning, alarm goes off, take a shower, you eat, you go to work, get done with work, you drive home, maybe eat something, say hi to the wife, go to sleep, and next morning, bzz, starts all over again. And that is life. And then that cycle is part of a bigger cycle, which is you're born, you grow, most of us get married, many of us have children, at some point the children leave, you retire. And then, sadly enough, you die. 
And the whole cycle starts over again with your kids. They're born, they grow, they get married, they have kids, they retire, and then they die. And so it keeps going and going, this never-ending cycle, which is then part of a bigger cycle. I mean, think in terms of kingdoms rising. Um, nations come, and they flourish for a time, and then, then they disintegrate and, and die. I mean, it's this never-ending cycle of life and death. And in short, that's human history. Um, no matter how many times you save the world, it always manages to get back in jeopardy again. It reminds me of uh, one of the ancient wise men of the Bible, um, a man by the name of Solomon, who wrote in Ecclesiastes some dark reflections on life, in which he observed the same thing, this never-ending cycle of futility, of life and death. And he went on a quest to figure out what is the meaning of life under the sun. What is the purpose? He tried different avenues, different routes. He tried wisdom. Maybe the acquisition of understanding and knowledge will discover the purpose and meaning of life. But he studied, he studied carefully. And what he realized is at the end of life, the wise man, after all of his toil and study, he dies just like the fool. So if this is all there is, what's the point of pursuing wisdom? So he tried pleasure. Maybe it's the pursuit of pleasure, something that uh, resonates with our generation. Um, so he tried almost every pleasure under the sun. Um, wine, women, and living. But he also recognized in the end that the person who p- pursues pleasure also dies and his or her pleasure with him or her. So what's the point if this is all there is? He says over and over again, it's meaningless. It's pointless if this is all there is. And so he tried possessions, and so he acquired for himself land and houses and vineyards and gardens. But he also recognized at the end of life, when you die, someone else gets it. You don't get to take it with you. So what is the point of life? If this is all there is, to use the words of the Apostle Paul, we might as well eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Uh, Tolstoy said something similar. He said that if this is all there is, we might as well lick the honey off of the leaves of life because this is it. It's kind of an interesting reflection because we're learning in our time those lessons that Solomon wrote about almost 3,000 years ago. You know, we live in a time in which people have put their stock in, in money and, and possessions only to have it ripped out from under them. You realize there's no certainty, no guarantee, and if that's what you're living for, then you've lost it, and that's the time in which we're living. Economy d- disintegrates, and so does that sense of meaning. Um, we live in a time in which people are being influenced by what they call postmodern thought, which basically disintegrates any confidence in human thinking and wisdom, questioning everything. So there's no confidence in human wisdom anymore as well. Well, Solomon wrote about that 3,000 years ago. The dilemma, the futility of life and death, the never-ending cycle. And if this is all there is, then life is pointless. So what's the answer to that dilemma, which all of us experience from day to day? Well, you can say, well, you know, that's just the way it is. This is all we have. We might as well eat, live, drink, 
for tomorrow we die. Some of you might give that particular philosophy of life. That's your answer. Accept it and deal with it. Thankfully, there's a a different answer um, that the Scripture provides to this never-ending cycle of futility of life and death, of things getting cleaned and then dirty again, of things being saved and then perishing. But it's a solution that comes with an understanding. The reason that the world in which we live, according to the Scripture, is subject to this never-ending cycle of futility of life and death is because the universe, the world, and everyone we know is currently under a curse. The world, in the view of the Bible, is under a curse. It wasn't originally intended to be this way, that never-ending cycle of meaningless futility. A curse that was brought on by a word that we have laughed at way too much, a curse brought on by sin, which produced death, which produces this never-ending cycle of futility. And not only do humans experience this never-ending cycle of futility, but the world in which we live experiences this never-ending cycle of futility. The world in which we live, the earth, is going to die. Centuries before the Mayans ever came up with their calendar, over which there's all this contemporary hype, Jesus said that the times are coming, and you will know them. There will be an increase in frequency and intensity of earthquakes all around the world. And lo and behold, whether it's 100 years out or 1,000 years out, those signs are here. The world in which we live will die, and both creationists and evolutionists are agreed on that point. It will die. The world as we know it, according to this book, is, is under a curse. That's why it's subject to futility. So, so what then is the, the solution? Most of you know what that is. That's why we gather here this morning. It is the solution to that never-ending cycle of death and life is, is Jesus. And more in particular, his resurrection. Now, what I'd like to do with you is I'd like to show you something in the Bible that still astounds me and puts Jesus at the center of history and just shows you how, what a massive figure he is and his work of crucifixion and of resurrection. Let me compare two passages for you. Most of you are familiar with at least the first one, and I want you to notice the similarity. And I just want you to think of how significant Jesus is in breaking this endless cycle of life and death. By the way, the idea of reincarnation would be as foreign to Jesus as darkness is to light. That's just a never-ending cycle of futility. Like, I really want to be born and live this life again and again and again and again. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, reads this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said... Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. The very beginning of history, according to the scriptures, it begins with the creator moving upon darkness, and in that darkness, that physical darkness, he speaks. And as he speaks, light bursts forth. That's Genesis 1 couple chapters from now, 
humanity will tumble headlong into the abyss of, of, of spiritual darkness when our first ancestors would take a different path away from and in defiance of the one who created them. And then sin would like just pour forth like, like water over the human race. The very first generation after would commit murder. And hence, we have what we have today. And it's, as a side note, it's interesting to me that with all the technological advances and all of the scientific advances, gives us a sense of progress. We're still just as screwed up today as we were 10,000 years ago. Because we can't make a moral change in ourselves. People are groping about in the dark trying to figure out where's life, what does life mean? At the very beginning, God moved on the darkness. He spoke and saw and, and created light, and he saw that it was good. There was no curse. Flipping to the New Testament, the Gospel of John. When he went to introduce Jesus, this is how he introduces him. You'll notice similarity. John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. When the writer John wanted to introduce who Jesus was, he borrowed the first three words from Genesis 1. In the beginning. Because he wanted us to make the association that what was happening with the coming of Jesus corresponds to the very first moment in time when it said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And just as in Genesis 1, where God moves upon the physical darkness we find here God moving into the spiritual darkness of humanity. That's why the mention of darkness, the light shines in our moral and spiritual darkness, but the darkness did not understand it. And just as in Genesis 1, when God speaks and light bursts forth, John 1.1, God speaks again. Only this speech becomes flesh and blood, Jesus Christ. This is God's spoken word the person of Jesus. And just as in Genesis 1, where light bursts forth and life, so in John 1, 1 and following, when he introduces Jesus, he's saying that through and in Jesus, life and light burst forth. In other words, putting this together, the God who created in Genesis 1 is moving again in Christ upon the darkened creation that has fallen to recreate her to bring life where there was death. So Jesus is the beginning of a recreation, not just of humanity, but of all the universe. That's how John introduces us to Jesus. And the means by which he does that, Jesus, this word that has become flesh, come to give light and life to mankind, living and groping in darkness, is through his death and his resurrection. The death is all about, in case you didn't get it on Good Friday, is about him absorbing the curse. The curse under which the world and all of its futile life and death kind of cycle, that curse was absorbed by him fully and completely for all who would trust him. So that there's no curse left for me. 
Every man, woman, and child on planet Earth outside of Jesus is still under that curse. That's the biblical view. But he came precisely to remove it and to absorb it in our place. That's what the cross is about. But then the resurrection corresponds to the, to the new life. So that light would dawn in the hearts of men, and one day our bodies would rise and experience and inherit a new heavens and a new earth. But it all begins with the resurrection. So you see, the end of the curse is the cross. And the beginning of a new heavens, new earth, of new life, is the resurrection. That's how integral and how central Jesus is. It's not just an event of history. It's the beginning of the renewal of history. That's, in the biblical view, how important the death and resurrection of Jesus is. The absorption of the curse and the offering and the breaking in of brand new life. Life that's not subject to that futility of life and death, life and death, life and death. And you know what? That new life that he came to bring, not only is it caused or grounded by what he did at the cross and the resurrection, but Christ also becomes the focus of this life. Everything that Solomon wanted when he pursued wisdom and pleasure and possessions, ultimately, is found and experienced in Jesus. Which is why Paul, the Apostle Paul, could say that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom really does not consist of what you know. But according to the scripture, it consists in who you know. Namely, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That is wisdom. Christ is the fullness of wisdom. What Solomon sought after could only be found in Christ, ultimately, in a way that would satisfy, or pleasures. That in Christ we find the desire for satisfaction completely and overwhelmingly fulfilled, which is why biblical writers can say, your love is better than life. Or who have I in heaven but you, and there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Or I have suffered the loss of all things that I may have Christ, because he is the consummate desire of the new life in us. That, my friends, is, is, is how important the resurrection is. It not only brings about a, a sweeping newness of, of a recreation in here, but a future and also a brand new focus in which Christ becomes the end-all, be-all of life. He's the one who ends that cycle of futility. But there is a response in the Gospel of John, he tells us that some are going to receive this work of new creation and some are not. He writes in John 1, verse 10, after talking about light coming into the darkness, he says, He was in the world, that is Christ, and through the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. They didn't recognize their own author. Verse 11, He came to that which was his own, his own people, but his own did not receive him. They crucified him instead. So some didn't receive. Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, and he's going to tell you what receiving means, to those who believed in his name, in what he's done, that he is the resurrection and the life. 
He gave the right to become children of God, children born. There's a new creation term. Born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Thanks, some are going to receive it. And they're going to receive it by believing it. Not just believing truths about it, but believing it in a way that transforms and changes your life. When, when, when the eyes are open and you see it, you believe it in a way that grips you. But that faith, he goes on to say, does not originate even with us. But with God basically saying, let there be light in the soul, which is that last verse, children born. He's talking about the heart. Born, not of our natural descent and not of decision on our part, but born of God. God says, let there be light, and you see, and you believe this truth, and you experience a beginning of a new life right here, right now. New tastes, new joys, a new desire for Christ. It may start small, but it grows through life. And that is what it means to receive it. Some of you, many of you perhaps have received it. And I think the Lord would say, continue to hunger and thirst after me. The consummate desire of the Bible, Christ. Perhaps there's others this morning here at Easter. You come out of a sense of tradition. And you may believe about Jesus, that he existed. But what keeps you from believing him fully? What keeps you from, what keeps you and Jesus an arm distance apart? Could it be that you have a warped view of, of who he is? Perhaps when you hear the name Jesus, what pops into your mind is a man on a street corner angrily yelling at people, holding a sign that says you're all going to hell. And that turns you off. Or maybe when you think about the name Jesus, Maybe what comes to your mind is shallow, superficial, leave-it-to-beaver kind of superficiality that doesn't deal with the complexities, the pains, and the sufferings, and the realities of life. Or maybe in your experience of the church, it has warped your view to think of Jesus as a rule maker, that all it is is a bunch of do's and don'ts, and it's not about a personal, engaging, captivating life-transforming relationship with him. I would encourage you to give it another look. And if you're one of those people who, who is like, man, this is intriguing. I don't know if I buy it yet. I would encourage you to start exploring. I would encourage you to read Genesis 1 through 3. Read the Gospel of John. All the while, just praying, Lord, if you're out there, if you're real, show me that this is true. Show me that this is true. Be a part of a, a fellowship that's moving in the same direction, like Parkway. And there's, there's a number of fine fellowships in Fairfield, Vacaville area. But be involved in a group of people who are seeking that very thing. And if you do, the Lord may say, let there be light in your soul. And you experience the beginning of a new creation that begins now, but ends when Jesus comes and recreates the world in which we live. And all of that comes back to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So I ask you this morning, do you believe? And if you don't, I'd ask you to take a look.
pray and seek and ask the Lord to say, let there be light in your soul. We now have the privilege of having some people who have had that experience uh, testify to that experience through baptism. And so I'm going to pray, and then we are going to hear how God has turned on the light in their lives. Father, we just ask that you and your grace and mercy would do your work of opening hearts and eyes. I know that I did not open my eyes to believe. I, you did. And at the same time, you do hear the cries of your people. And I pray for those who are here in all different walks of life and experiences and backgrounds that you would do your work, the most important work in history, which is bringing the resurrection of Jesus into the lives of those gathered here this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've come to our baptism time, and shortly you'll see Dan Overby appear magically. No, not, not, not magically. Not at all. There we are. Magic happened. <laughs> this is an amazing celebration today. It is the death and the resurrection of Jesus that gives us hope. Um, the people who are coming this morning to be baptized, they are believers already. Baptism does not save. It is a declaration that God has saved. It is a declaration of what God has done in the death and resurrection of Christ. And as you, as you watch what happens, I want you to think of a few things. When the person goes down in the water, think of the death that Jesus faced and the fact that he went in the grave. And that three days later, when they come up out of the water, it's a declaration of what he did, that he rose again. When they go down under the water, it is like the wrath of God was poured out, like on Egypt or on Noah during Noah's day. And when they come up, there is no more wrath to be faced. Um, so I just want you to guys to have a mental picture of what is happening. Um, again, it's not that they are being saved. They have been saved, and they're testifying to that salvation. And right now I'm going to ask Camille G'day and Noel to come down and share what God has done this morning. And what's really kind of fun about this service is I'm not baptizing anybody. Um, this is God working through his people to save without a pastor. And um, I think that's cool because that is what the saints do. They share the love of God with others and it touches down in life. Um, happy Easter. I'm very happy to be here and share this special moment um, with me and Noelle, my daughter. And I'm, um, I promised Noelle I wouldn't embarrass her. So um, I wrote everything down, and um, I'm going to stay pretty much with my script today. Uh, Noelle came into my life three years ago. Um, neither she nor I were raised in a Christian home. Our childhoods were similar, a home where the harsh reality of abuse brought difficult, difficulties, confusion, and fears. These varied forms of abuse robbed us of hope and a concept of truly grasping who God is. When I came to Christ, I felt very alone in my new faith and did not have a church family to help guide and support me. The church was for God's holy people, I thought, certainly not for someone like me. I never felt normal enough, brave enough, or important enough to really have a direct connection with God. 
Life was tough, and one shouldn't waste time crying about it and hoping for anything more. Life was much easier lived through a tough and angry but shallow exterior. For Noel and I both, it was not only until we came into the love of God's family, his church, that we were able to learn more of God's healing words. We gradually came.